things as we're flipping. Uh, Xander already mentioned it. Man, Wednesday night is going to be awesome. Make sure you get here for that. Um, and, and we're really ushering the church into this next season. We've got shirts for sale in the foyer, and they're really simple, and they're really basic. They say two words, and it's simply this, for Morgan. And, and what we're trying to do, as Xander talked about earlier, is just kick the doors wide open of the church. And we want the entire community to know this isn't just a tagline. This is, this is deep in our souls that we want the entirety of Morgan County to know Jesus as their Savior. To be able to, to sit in a room like this and sing with all sincerity that because what Christ has done for us in our lives, it is well. No matter what is happening around our lives, we can genuinely say, it is well with my soul. That's our desire. And so it has nothing to do with growing numbers. Please hear me say that. It has nothing to do with growing numbers. The only number in my mind that matters is that 20,000 people in our county don't know Jesus and are dying and going to hell. That's the number that matters. And so as we're ushering into this next season of church, that's why we printed those shirts. That's what we really want to focus on uh, moving forward. That's why the whole reason we're doing the chili chow down and um, the hayride and the inflatables and the trunk or tree, all that stuff is just so that we can meet and love our neighbors and tell them about Jesus. So um, if you want to, those t-shirts are out there. You can buy them. It's supposed to be a conversation piece that people can say, what does that mean? And we can open up the doors for the gospel in that route. So please do that. Um, lastly, I'm already preaching, I'm sorry. Lastly, um, we have another baby born. Uh, so some of our newcomers, um, Charlotte and Jason Wood, this week on October 11th had uh, Remington Robert Wood. Is that not a solid name? Uh, so they're going to call him Remy, but he was born on October 11th, 8 pounds, 10 ounces, 21 inches long. So be praying for that family. Uh, we're just so excited to see all that God's going to do through them. Uh, so uh, Matthew 8 is where we're going to be, but briefly let me preface with where I was over this last week. So uh, as you guys may have noticed, I wasn't here last Sunday. I'm currently working on a PhD in uh, ecclesiology, applied theology and ecclesiology. So uh, one of the things I had the opportunity to do was go to the Northeast and study uh, really the Great Awakening and how the gospel spread in New England. So uh, there's a map up here. This is all the stops that we did over the last seven days. Yeah, if you think I'm tired, I am. Uh, so we would get up in the morning about eight, and we would drive and lecture and drive and lecture, and then they had this technology where they could even lecture while we were in the cars. And uh, so we made a massive loop. We hit every state in New England um, just to study how the gospel spread. So the time we saw Plymouth Rock, which has anyone seen Plymouth Rock? pretty disappointing, isn't it? I mean, you, you Plymouth Rock all your life, it's like, that's, that's it? Uh, it's erosion. No, that's just a lame rock. So um, we, we all the way from Plymouth Rock, and we studied uh, church history from 1620 all the way to the Great Awakening in 1750 and, or 1730-ish, uh, and then we started to see uh, how that trailed out, and then we dabbled a little bit into the second Great Awakening. Um, and, and I know some of that, that means nothing to anybody, and that makes sense. Um, but there's one guy in particular. There, there was a lot. I mean, we, we learned a ton. I told my wife last night, it felt like, um, you, you know when you're pouring oil into a funnel, and you have to stop, and then let it kind of go down, and then you keep pouring? Uh, I'm in the stop phase, right, where everything I heard is now like going into my soul. And uh, just been encouraged by so many men and women that we studied over the last seven days uh, because they were all so faithful. 
Like the fact that we are literally standing on all of their shoulders, as they would not have fought for religious liberty, if they would have not fought to protect the gospel, uh, then we wouldn't have what we have. And, and one thing, I mean, just for fun, but uh, in the town of Cheshire, right, so, so these guys made this 1,200-pound block of cheese to send to the White House as a gift to try to convince the White House to allow uh, the separation of church and state to be, as Thomas Jefferson and James Madison were working on the documents of our country, they sent a massive block of cheese begging them, let the church separate from the state. Because before then, um, I would have been paid by the state. Y'all would have given uh, tithe. Some of that tithe would have gone to taxes, and then the taxes would have turned around. I would have been an employee of the state, and no one wants that. And so what we see is these guys, even though it's hilarious and there's actually a statue of a 1,200-pound block of cheese that you can go visit, it's funny to think about, but if it wasn't for that block of cheese, church would not be what we know it to be today. So these faithful men that sacrificed a lot. And so there's one guy I just want to share about. His name's Obadiah Holmes. Uh, anyone ever heard of Obadiah Holmes? Oh, one person. Two people. Three. Oh, my gosh. This is pretty awesome. I had not heard about Obadiah Holmes. So Obadiah Holmes was born in, this is just a little snapshot of what I got over the last week. I'm just excited. Go with it. I'll get to Matthew in a second, uh, even if you're not. Just smile and nod. That will be fine for me. Uh, Obadiah Holmes was born over in England, 1610. Uh, comes over, not on the Mayflower, but not long after the pilgrims start coming for religious freedom. He comes over to the States. He lands up in the Massachusetts area. And so he joins a congregational church, which was the state church at that time um, and gets involved. But about 10, 11 years later, he starts to see uh, some biblical truth that he was rubbing hard with. And the main one was simply this, infant baptism. He said, no, I, I, think I'm a, I think I'm a Baptist. I think that baptism is supposed to be after the conversion, not before. And then the other thing that he saw was the state church, that the, the church, the government should not tell the state or the church what we can and cannot do. And so because of those two reasons, he leaves, right? So he backs out, but he has to be real quiet about the way he's doing it. So him and a couple other guys really start a home church, uh, preaching the gospel, studying together, and as it grows, they've got one member that's there in Rhode Island. They've got one member that's in Massachusetts. And at that time, they're different colonies, so Rhode Island had more religious freedom than Massachusetts did because each colony could kind of govern themselves. And so they sneak down into Massachusetts to visit this elderly man that cannot make it to church, and they preach the gospel. They have a little church service. Uh, well, the county officials, the colony officials, come and arrest them on the spot just for having church outside of the Lord's day and preaching a message of baptism. They arrest the three of these guys, take them to jail. They go through the court systems, and so they come out with these fines for all three of them. So two out of the three pay the fines and go home, but Obadiah Holmes says, no, I'm not doing it. I did nothing wrong. I'm not paying a fine. I'm just preaching the gospel. And so because of his faithfulness, uh, they, they wrestle with what to do. They keep him in prison for a little longer. And so what they decide to do then is bring Obadiah Holmes out into Boston Common in front of everyone to see to try to make an example out of him, and they beat him nearly to death. They whip him with horse lashes across the back. And so uh, when he gets back to Rhode Island, this is, this is one of the reasons I love him. This is what he says. Uh, Having a joyfulness in my heart and cheerfulness in my countenance, I told the magistrates, those whipping him, you have struck me as with roses. 
So as he's getting beat, he's looking at the magistrates that are beating him for just preaching the gospel and saying, man, you're hitting me with roses. Keep going. I love this. Keep going. I'm just talking smack right in their face. However, Dr. Clark, who was a co-pastor with him, said not long after, there's many days, if not weeks, that he could take no rest as he lay upon his knees and elbows, not being able to suffer any part of his body or touch the bed where he lays. So even though he tells the magistrate, man, you're beating me with roses, this is a joyful experience for me, it was incredibly painful. Uh, Actually, after almost near his death, the Rhode Island governor said about him that those who have seen the scars on Mr. Holmes' back have expressed a wonder that he should live. So he was, in fact, beaten almost to his death. It was an excruciating pain. Why? Because he was preaching the Bible. This is our American history, right? He was, he was going against the state and preaching the good news of the gospel and his convictions. And because of guys like Obadiah Holmes, we have religious liberty in our day and time today. But when you stop and think about just the faith that this man had, not only did he get on a boat and come across the sea into America, which was no like Royal Caribbean cruise, we know that, right? Like half of them died as they came over to the States. It was not a fun process. And then not only that, he's here for some time, hears the teaching of the church about 11 years and then separates himself from that. The faith that it took to leave this kind of church and start of his own was an incredible act of faith. And not only that, even though he knew he was going into Massachusetts, into a territory that he should not be, he still went to love those within his congregation. And not only that, he gets arrested. The faith that it takes to not just pay your fine and go home, but go, whatever, I, whatever it is, I'm not paying the fine. I've done nothing wrong. I'll take whatever you throw at me. The faith that it takes. And then he goes back to Rhode Island and founds the second Baptist church in our country that you can still go visit today. And I hung out with a pastor who loves Jesus and is faithfully preaching the gospel in that area. That is Obadiah Holmes, and that is the faith that we can look back at our church fathers and go, oh my goodness, if it wasn't for their faith. But here's the reality. Church, we're all called to that same faith. Obadiah Holmes was just a man, just like me, just like you, or woman. He was a person. But Obadiah Holmes loved Jesus, had the same spirit in him that we have within us. And what we're going to see this morning is Jesus is going to call out the faith in his disciples just like he's going to call it out in us. And say, you should not fear. If I am with you, brother, sister, have faith that you can do whatever I lead you to do. And so what we need, just like back then, they had faithful men and women that were not cowering down to anybody other than Jesus Christ. And we desperately need that in our time again today. So uh, with all that being said, let's look at Matthew 8, 23 through 27. Just a few quick verses. I've got a few quick comments on it. I promise uh, I'm not going to promise. I'm going to try to keep this short, but I don't want to make a liar. So Matthew 8, 23 through 27, when you have it, let's stand together and read this as God is speaking to us through his word. Matthew 8, 23 through 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him up, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid of you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. 
And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. God, would you illuminate this scripture to our hearts and our minds this morning? Would we wrestle with this question that why are we afraid, O us of little faith? Speak to us this morning, Lord. It's your name that we pray. Amen. So just contextually, we got to remember for a second where we are, right? So Jesus has just preached this most famous sermon, right? The Sermon on the Mount. He's really laid out to be citizens of the kingdom, to come follow after me. This is what it's going to look like. And because of that, his fame had begun to spread. And we see right after the Sermon on the Mount, there's three really important miracles that takes place. And then just as a certain little aside, just a certain little tagline, he said that he healed all those with diseases and infirmities and demon-possessed. So, so all means all within the Scripture. So he's not only preaching, he's not only doing some miracles, but in the region that he was in, he literally healed everybody. Everybody that came to him, he healed. So there was this massive fame and spread that were taking place all across this region. And so what this naturally starts to create is like the bandwagon fanboy kind of mentality, right? Everyone's coming out to see. It's kind of like Colorado fans were a couple weeks ago until they're now four and three. Like, like that kind of bandwagon fans. Anybody else? Um, so, so we see this massive, miraculous thing taking place and these crowds growing. So then Jesus, in what Xander preached last week, which he did a fantastic job, uh, when, he, when he stopped, he said, okay, I've got this massive crowd following me, so let me be clear. If you're going to come after me, let the dead bury their dead. If you're going to come after me, if you're going to be one of my disciples, pr- I promise you, you're going to have nowhere to lay your head. So count the cost. If you're coming after me just because you get good stuff, you're not actually going to be a disciple and you're not actually going to make it. But if you're actually coming after me because you want me and not the things I can offer, then, then come follow me. So, so the tagline of last week really was the cost of discipleship. Count the cost, consider the cost. And that's something that I've raved and ranted on often is that almost none of us in the room got that kind of conversion experience. Almost none of us got the thing of, hey, if you want to be a Christian, let me tell you, let me consider this just for a second, that if you actually follow Jesus, your life is not going to be butterflies and roses and make a bunch of money. It might actually lead you into suffering, into persecution, into really, really hard things. Slow down and count the cost. One of the massive things that I studied over the last couple of weeks is the years. I'm not talking like hours or seconds, the years that people would think and consider and pray and wrestle with the Lord before they would follow him. Years. And so we really have to slow down. What Jesus is teaching is account the cost. Don't fall for this manipulation. Don't fall for this uh, anything else. Consider what it actually means to follow him and then do it. But then we arrive to today that there's still such a massive crowd that Jesus desires to get to the other side of the sea. And this is where we pick it up, where Jesus is getting on the boat, going to the other side of the sea. And here's, here's the central point of the text. It's simply this. The result of following Jesus will not free you from hardship. The result of following Jesus will not free you from hardship. Jesus tells them to let the dead bury the dead. He tells them that they'll have nowhere to lay their head, but following Jesus in faith means you have to have zero fear. You fear 
nothing. And this is what the Jesus, the Jesus is teaching the Jews, that faith is not based on just a proximity, just being around Jesus, knowing enough facts about Jesus, but rather knowing him. So we can be close to him, but if we're not actually doing it, one of the refrains that we'll see throughout Scripture is faith cannot just be a noun. Does that make sense? Like faith cannot just be a thing. It's what James talks about often, that show me your faith by your works. And this is not a legalistic thing by no means, but as if you truly have faith, faith is not a noun, faith is a verb. Faith is an action. And we could all see this in our relationships. If I tell you I love you, but I never answer the phone when you call, I never serve you in any capacity, I never check in on you, would you say that I actually loved you? If, if I was married to my wife and I never talked to her, looked at her, took her on a date night, provided for her nothing, you would say, you don't love her. And so in the same way, we have to understand what the Jews believed was faith was just a noun. I say it and it happens. But what Jesus is going, no, if you're going to come after me, it's got to be a verb. Faith is an action. It's a thing that you do, not just something that you say. And so what we see this morning is really that, that where you put your faith is revealed when your life gets out of control. So if faith is a verb, what Jesus is teaching us, what he's showing us in this text this morning is simply this, where you put your faith is revealed when life gets out of your control. So do you try to figure it out and do you push Jesus to the side and push everyone to the side and say, I can fix this, I can handle this, I can take care of this then you have no faith in the one that saved you. And there's a chance he might not have even saved you. If your impulse is not to run to the Father but fix it for yourself, brother, sister, do you have faith in him? You can say you do, but do you run to the Father? And so what we're seeing this morning is a perfect example. And, and I'll just go ahead and jump ahead a little bit, and maybe I shouldn't do this, but at the end of this passage, what do the disciples call him? They say, what man is this? So, so even in this moment, they're still not putting faith in that he is God. They're saying, what kind of man is this? And so for us, we have to really wrestle with how we put our faith, our full faith in God and God alone through Christ. And so the first myth that we have to see is, number one, simply this. Our lack of faith assumes that suffering is the absence of Christ. So what we see from this passage, number one, and I, and I know almost every week someone says, hey, what was point number two? What was point number three? So I'm really going to try to like, cognitively slow down and say, here is point number one. We good? Are you all good with that? You type A's, you're like, praise Jesus. Right? So uh, number one, our lack of faith assumes suffering is the absence of Christ. And here's where we see this. Look with me at verse 24. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he, Jesus, was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. So if let's fully understand what's happening in the minds of the disciples. The, the boat was in trouble, and they were losing their mind. And please hear me. It's not like these guys didn't know boats. Some of them were fishermen, so they were, and this was not an overreaction by no means. This was them seeing the, the waters coming in. I love how Matthew says the boat was getting swamped, right? Like water was coming in, this, this, 
the, where this was, where the sea was, uh, winds and rains would come in like this pretty unexpectedly, somewhat often. And so as the wind and rains come in, uh, they're losing their mind, they're panicking. Mark and Luke have this, a similar story in this, and the way that Mark says it is that the boat was already filling so they're running around because the, there's water coming up to their knees. Now, I don't know how much you know about boating, but there's not supposed to be water in the boat, right? I mean, that's just like 101 boating. The water stays out of the boat, not in the boat. So they're running around because the boat was already filling. And Luke Gospel puts it, it was filling with water and they were in danger, so these guys that knew boating were rightly losing their minds because their boat was filling with water and they knew what that was going to entail. We have to remember where these guys have been. Everything they've seen Jesus do has been miraculous and great and beautiful. This is the first hardship that they've walked through with Jesus. This is the first thing that's, that's had them uh, panicking, worrying, fearful in the presence of Jesus. All that Jesus has done really up until this point is miracle after miracle after miracle. And in this moment, they're not seeing miracles taking place. They're seeing death knocking on their doorsteps. It's a high probability that most of these men in the boat had lost a family member or a friend in a boat in a very similar way. So they knew what was coming and what could happen. And so this was a real danger. They were not overreacting. And so they went to go find Jesus and go run after him. And you have to understand maybe the, the mentality that was taking place in their minds that, that Jesus did all these miracles. If I follow Jesus, nothing bad is going to happen. That Jesus will not allow anything to happen. I think if we all were to be honest, we've all had that experience happen in our life. How many of us have prayed in the darkness of our own hearts and the secrets of our minds, said, God, if you loved me, you wouldn't let this happen? We've all uttered that prayer. God, God where were you? I've, I've given to the church. I've done all these things. If you loved me, you wouldn't let this happen. We've all been there. I know I've shared this story before, so if you've heard it, don't fall asleep. If you haven't, stay with me. Um, when we were back in 2014, we were planting the church in Dahlonega. Um, we had just moved to Dahlonega, really knew nobody. And we had, Auburn was three. We had just had Grady. He was a brand new baby. And at that moment, we lost Bree's dad to a sudden heart attack, just instantly. And so uh, how are we supposed to start a church? How are we supposed to have a family while my wife's grieving, while we're all grieving, we're going through this process? And it was in this season, probably a year-long season, where God just didn't show up like I thought he should. Where, where my wife was crying out to him, God, if I know you're real and I know you love me, just speak to me. Just give me peace. Just give me some kind of comfort. Give me something. And so, so often as the overprotective husband, I would see my wife crying out to God and no response. And I remember vividly numerous times saying, I love my kids better than you love yours, God. If I were you, I wouldn't handle it this way. And please hear me, that's in sin. I'm not boasting in that. I'm, that's a regretful thing that I said. And God has proven to be faithful, and we could share the whole story at some point. But that was one of the first things in my life where I felt like God was just on a boat sleeping. Where we're here, we're crying out, we're, we're asking for help, and you're not doing anything. You just got your pillow, and you're just there. And in my mind, I thought if I followed Jesus that there was never going to be those kind of moments of true hardship or suffering or going through something that has us at our wits 
in, but that's a perverse gospel that's nowhere in the scriptures. Actually, quite the contrary. John 16, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. First Peter 4, Peter tells us, Beloved, do not be surprised when fiery trial comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So, so Peter's saying, when there's some really weird things that are happening that just don't seem to make sense, remember this passage. I told you these times were coming, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then Romans 5, 3 through 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts and through that Holy Spirit has been given to us. So we can be just like the disciples, that when the storm, the seas start raging and we're losing our minds and instantly we think, if I follow Jesus, things weren't supposed to end this way. If God was actually real, this would not be happening. If, I, if Jesus loved me, then he would not let this bad thing happen to me. And that's where our mind starts to go. And please hear me, church, that is an enemy's trick that's going to destroy you. Jesus never promised any of that. Jesus never said, follow me and everything's going to be perfect. If you follow me, there will be no hardship, no suffering, no persecution, no death, no sin, no calamities. That's not true here. But by God's grace, that will be true one day. When we get to heaven with him for eternity, there is no sin, death, hardship, suffering, persecutions, calamities. None of that will be true. It will be worshiping King Jesus in a perfected state forever. So Jesus is saying, just hold on. Hold on. So consider what the disciples were able to see as a result of their suffering, though. This is, this is one thing I, if, if I wish we could just spend so much time on. Because when you go through a season of suffering, when you go through a season of hardship, you can look back and honestly see things from a new light. Here's what the disciples said in verse 27. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? So the moments of near-death experience, just fast forward a little bit, they can look back and go, oh my gosh, how powerful, sovereign, and loving is our God. And how many of us can give that same testimony, that we've gone through some of the darkest days of our life, now just to look back and go, oh my gosh, how good was God in that process? I mean, anybody else witness to that? If we don't start talking about that, though, we're perpetuating the same inconsistent gospel that we've been preached to our entire lives, that follow Jesus and things are just going to get better. Paul would say, all the more we boast in our weaknesses, all the more we talk about our hardships, because when we look weak, guess who looks strong? Jesus. And so we must talk about these seasons that we've gone through unless we paint this perfect picture of Christianity that is unattainable for everybody. That's just a false, perverse gospel that is actually sending more people to hell than not. Because people see this facade that we have on and think, well, I mean, they're just all faking it anyways. But if we could just have gut-level, honest conversations, if you could sit down with one of these disciples and go, man, tell me about the scariest moment of your life, they would say, well, brother, I've just trusted Jesus my whole life and things have just worked out for the good. I mean, that's what Romans 8 says. No, they go, man, let me tell you about this experience. I thought I was going to die. 
right? And I was cussing the name of Jesus because of it. I was running around in a boat with water up to my knees, and I said, Jesus, where are you? And then dude came out and calmed everything with a word. And I was ashamed of my sin in that moment, but Jesus made himself known. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's what we must preach and proclaim in this way. Seasons of suffering will always allow us to see the power, might, and goodness of Christ after. So brothers and sisters, hold the faith in the moment. Don't lose your faith in the moment. As the sea is tossing you around and you think death is right there, don't lose the faith. Number two, our lack of faith shows our belief that Jesus cannot or does not want to fix our situation. So first, our lack of faith leads us to believe that if we follow Jesus, everything is going to work out perfectly. Number two, our lack of faith shows that the belief that Jesus cannot or does not want to fix our situation. And we see this out of verse 25. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Mark's gospel puts it in a, in a uh, maybe a little bit more honest way. Mark 4.38, this is how it says it. But he, was in, he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And I love that detail. He was asleep on the cushion. Mark was including this going, he was sleeping just fine. Not a concern in the world, asleep on the cushion. And they, the disciples, went and woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we are perishing? So, so here's where a lack of faith really shows up for these disciples. They think that he doesn't even care. That Jesus has just taught the gospel in this incredible way. There's been tens of thousands of people following him. He's done miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. But for them, he just doesn't care about them. And either that he doesn't care or he can't actually fix it. So either way, it's a sinful thought that come out of the hearts of the disciples when they say to King Jesus, the Son of God, do you not care? Either you can't do it or you don't love us enough to do it, but you're not fixing this problem. You're asleep on a cushion, Jesus, while we're screaming around for our lives. Do you not care? And in this moment, they're looking into the face of the begotten Son of God, making a damnful accusation that God does not love and care for his creation. But oftentimes, we do the same thing. We look into the face of Jesus and either accuse him of not being able to do what he said he would do, or not being able to actually do this. So we have this rule in our house, right? Um, and really, I started it. My, my wife, um, even though, yes, she might have a fall or two every now and then, I genuinely don't see them. Um, compared to me, she is perfect. So she never says things that she doesn't regret. I say it about every 10 minutes. Anybody else? So uh, we have this rule, and it's because my children are, are from me, that oftentimes, and I won't say often, but there are times when the kids will get uh, in, in a temper tantrum or get upset about something, and they'll come in, and they'll use a tone with me. This should lead to some discipline. I'll put it that way. But the first time it happens, I'll just look them deep into their eye sockets and say, try that again. And they know that dad's showing some grace and saying, okay, dad. And more often than not, they'll, they'll correct themselves 
And when they say it the second time, it's in a more proper way. Every now and then they don't, and that's when there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in this moment, Jesus gives the disciples a, hey, try that again moment. That I know you're fearful for your life, but do not accuse me of not caring about the ones that I've come to give my life for. Try that again, disciples. And so for us, we have to constantly have these try this again moments because Jesus gets up off of his cushion, he walks out into the stern and asks the question, why are you afraid? Are you of little faith? This is that try again moment where, where disciples settle down, watch your tone, and let me ask you a question. Why are you afraid? Are you of little faith? They were afraid because they didn't think Jesus could or would fix the death-altering death situation that they've now found themselves in. But what does Jesus do? Instantly rebukes it. Instantly walks out, tells it to stop, knock it off, and the winds and the rain obey him. And so perhaps, perhaps, what Jesus really wanted for these disciples is to have the faith to walk in and shake Jesus on the cushion and say, hey, I don't know that you know this right now, but it's storming pretty bad, but you're here and we trust you. So if you want to fix this, please do, it would be great. But if not, we just want to ask you, would you please? See, how much of our faith is, comes from learning to pray and petition God the Father in our prayers. This is what Jesus says that we just studied a couple weeks ago in Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. And here's where it gets really personal for us. And which one of you who has a son that asks him for bread will give him a stone? Or a fish gives him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? So the try again moment is maybe we shouldn't accuse Jesus of not being able to fix it or not wanting to fix it. And maybe we should hit our knees and plead with him to fix it. But we're so quick to try to either do it on our own or say a quick prayer. And if he doesn't fix it right there in the moment, because we're this instant gratification, Amazon's here in two days, and if it's on the third day, we're furious, right? We want answers, and we want them now. We want our package now. But perhaps the entire point of spiritual disciplines is to slow down and plead and beg and intercede to the Lord on our behalf and others' behalf for him to do something mighty, and we don't stop asking until God tells us to stop asking. So, so maybe the biggest thing that he wants for our faith is to put us in really hard situations so that we have to beg and plead with God our Father through Christ. So let's stop saying that he can't or he won't, but let's ask, let's beg, let's plead. But, but here's where I want to end, because the the foreshadowing of what's coming is so crystal clear in this passage. Look with me, uh, really the entirety of the story. But here's what we see. That true faith is an action. It's no longer a verb. This is point number three. True faith is an action found in a confession of hopelessness. So true faith is not just a thing that we say. It's an action that we do. It's a confession of hopelessness. And so we have to look at the imagery that's here. If we look back at verse 25, 
the, the what they ask of Jesus is so prophetically perfect to what he's come to do and rescue us from. Look back with me at verse 25. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Is this not the prayer of the saints for salvation? Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. What, what they've come to understand in this moment is that there's no way we can stop what's happening around us. That there's no control in us over the wind, over the seas, over the rain, over this boat flooding and killing us all. There's only one who can save us, and it's Jesus. So even though there was a little uh, lack of faith in them for fear to well up in them, their prayer, their petition to Jesus was a 10,000% correct Save us, Lord, we are perishing. This is salvific faith for us. When we come to the point, when we realize that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves, to fix ourselves, to redeem ourselves, to rescue ourselves, it's only King Jesus that can do that. Through his blood on the cross, that is what it means to be saved. Jonathan Edwards, who preached the sinners in the hands of an angry God, who was a massive leader in the Great Awakening, puts it this way, that we would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. That is when we know that we fully understand that we can do nothing that just as much as the men were going to die in the boat, Edward is saying, our getting ourselves into heaven, our keeping ourselves out of hell is just like a spider web trying to stop a falling rock. It's not going to happen. And the moment that we come to that realization, friends, is when we cry out to God, save us, Lord, we are perishing, we are dying. So in that moment, what does Jesus do for the disciples? He gets up. He walks out on the boat and says, that's enough. He doesn't pray to God to do it. With the voice of Jesus, he stops all of it in that moment. In the same way, Jesus also calms the storms in our own souls. He belittles the sin. He, he takes the stone of flesh out and he puts in the stone or the heart of flesh and he gives us the new spirit inside of us to reside, to lead us into deeper relationship with him. And so in the same way as the disciples are going through an external sit, the, the thing that was happening with the wind and the rain and all of that, that's what's happening in our own souls. And before Christ, we had no way to fix that. That was going to send us to hell. But after Christ, he comes in and he stops all of it with just a voice. And then we see the imagery that's taking place here that is salvation for us. And what's the proper response then? After we've cried out, God save us, we are perishing. And he takes out the heart of uh, stone and puts in the heart of flesh. He gives us the spirit. He calms the storm inside of us. And what is our natural response? Well, would be the same that we see in verse 27. And the men marveled saying, what son of man is this? excuse me, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him. But that's not what we say. We say, what God is this that sent Jesus to die and take our place? That is what salvation means for us. Psalm 8 puts it perfectly. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? I mean, this is what we see. The disciples deserved none of that. 
But God, in his love, in his grace, gave Jesus the power in that moment to stop the, the, uh, the wind and the rain and the seas from roaring. And in the same way, if we say that same prayer, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Scripture says that he's faithful and just to forgive us of all of our iniquities, but to give the spirit inside of us and to give us a hope and a future that we did not deserve. In the same way as the disciples were moments away from death, we are also moments away from spending eternity in hell without him. But with that simple prayer, save us, Lord, we are perishing. There's nothing we can do. But, but here's, the, here's the miraculous part that no one really talks about. We know that to be the sinner's prayer, right? That, that is how God chooses to save us. But most of us in this room have probably been walking with the Lord for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. How often do we use that same prayer to sustain us? See, we think that the gospel is just the ABC in Christianity. Admit, believe, confess. But as Tim Keller would say, the gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. It's all of it. There's never a moment that we grow up and grow out of the prayer of save us, Lord, for we are perishing. That is going to be a prayer and a refrain for our entire life. But what happens is we pray that prayer and Christ comes into us and then we foolishly walk over here and cry, God has saved me, now I have to sustain me. Now I have to keep myself going, I have to light my faith, I have to do this all on my own. And how exhausting is that? I mean, there's people in this room that could give witness to that, that they were saved at a young age and they tried to do life on their own until they couldn't. And they said, I'm, I'm coming back. Uh, save me, Lord, I'm perishing. I cannot do this. And Jesus is going, duh. That's the beauty of the gospel. You were never designed to do this on your own. That Jesus didn't stop the storm and then walk away from his disciples, did he? He didn't say, okay, you good? You got this? I'm going to go take another nap. No, Jesus sustained them for the entirety of his life until he was murdered on our behalf and then gave the Spirit to sustain them. That we were never supposed to be this rugged, individualistic men and women that I can do it by myself. That's Scripture saying that's revealing a lack of faith, not a faith that we have in him. And it's so freeing. It's so freeing to have a faith that's so strong that you just do not fear. There's nothing that can happen to you that you fear nothing because your faith in him and him alone is so strong that, yeah, let the winds come, it's fine. Let the storms come, it's fine. I mean, this is what Paul is talking about. We see, man, if you arrest me, that's great. I'm going to convert all your guards to Christianity. Oh, you're going to let me free? Oh, that's fine too. I'm, I'm going to keep preaching the gospel in the streets. You're going to kill me? Okay, well, to die is gain. You're going to let me live? Okay, to live is Christ. You just couldn't touch the guy because he was constantly like, life or death, I'm fine. It does not matter to me. That's a faith that all of us should strive for, the faith of Obadiah Holmes. Beat me if you want to. I'm not going to stop preaching the gospel. And as he's getting beat, man, that's, that's like roses, man. You can't swing harder than that. Like, that is the beauty, that is the faith that we should all want, that we are untouchable for the sake of the gospel. We have so much faith in him that when the wind and the seas and the storms come, we're not worried because we have that prayer in our hearts. When things happen, save us, Lord. Save us, Jesus. Move in this, Jesus. We're going to not stop pleading to you until this happens. We're not worried about it. So I think there's a few people in the room this morning right now. First, there's people in here 
that would, would say, man, I'm not a believer, I'm not a Christian, I'm not following Jesus. And here's what I'm here to say, what the scripture says. It's simple. Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. Save me, Lord. I'm, I'm living, you're right now, you're living in the storms and the winds and the seas. And with a prayer, God could solve that by giving you the Spirit. Now, does that mean that your life is going to get easier? No, but that means you have the presence of Christ dwelling in you richly for here and forevermore. And that you can take, take hope and genuine faith that one day all that stuff will cease. That is the beauty of the gospel that he's calling you into. You don't have to fix this on your own. You don't have to run around on a boat that's sinking with a bucket trying to get water out as fast as possible. You don't have to do that. Put your faith in him and him alone. It's the purpose that he came to live and to die and be raised on the third day so that you can be set free from that kind of life. Put your faith in him. And to the Christian right now that's in the storm, have faith. You know, one of the things that I had the opportunity to do over the last week was uh, spend a lot of time with some other pastors. So we're talking, encouraging, and, and I was telling Miss Chris earlier, really funny, we don't have time for this. Uh, I've already started, though. It was really funny. We were riding the T through Boston Friday before we flew out Saturday, and it was me and two other guys that were hanging out. We went toward Fenway Park, and then as we're coming back, we're going all over Boston trying to find souvenirs for our kids. I've got four. Another guy had four. Another guy had three. And it just hit me like, this is straight dad mode. Like, this is a new season of life for me where me and two other dads are trying to go find souvenirs for our kids that don't require a mortgage, right? And so, anyways, as I'm spending time with these guys, I'm just telling them about you and what God is doing here. The, the thing that really hit me, and, and I think I've known it, but, but saying it out loud is that there is a, I would venture to say a majority, an unnormal proportion of people in this church body that are right now in this moment going through the storms and the seas that we've just read about. I, I don't know that I've pastored a group of people that have this much turmoil happening. And, and most of the time, I'm not, I'm, I'm not even saying it's a direct result of your sin, it's just the fallenness of our world. And so there's a lot of Christians in this room right now that are in the storm, suffering tremendously, crying out, save us, Lord, we're perishing. I just want to encourage you, have faith. Keep the faith. Keep going. Keep pleading. God has not forgotten about you, and he does not have the inability to solve what you're going through, but he's leading you through this for a purpose. And I know right now that you probably want to punch me in the face for me saying that. I mean, this is that Romans 8.28 that sounds really good until you're right in the middle of it, and then someone says, well, you know, brother, they're working, God's working this together for your good. It's like, you better back up because I'm going to punch you. Because there seems like nothing right now in this situation that seems like it could be for my good. But trust me, this is what the scripture says. He loves you, he's not forgotten about you, and he's not weak-handed. That there's a purpose that's happening. Trust him and keep the faith because there will come a day sooner or later where you can be like the disciples looking back and marveling at just how beautiful your God is for what he's done. And I pray that for some of you that day comes way sooner than later. And I will continue to pray for that. But for you in this moment, you need to pray, beg, plead, and keep asking. Keep pleading. Keep begging for God to do something that you cannot do. 
cry out to him, save us, Lord, not just for salvation, but to sustain you. I am perishing. I feel like I'm wasting away. Save me, Lord. And for the last one, for the last group in this room, that that you might have some experience in this area, and where you're sitting right now, you're actually feeling all right, that you're not going through a big trial right now, but you can clearly look back and see trial after trial after trial where God has called you and brought you through and sustained you through, and now you can look back and marvel. For you, I would say this, the church desperately needs you. There's people to the left and to the right of you that need to hear your story, that need to have you pray over them, love them, support them, encourage them, because right now their world is collapsing and falling apart. And they need just a brother, a sister to love them, to hug them if they're okay with hugging, don't hug me. Uh, Hug them and say, you're going to make it through, I promise. And you don't believe me, and I understand, but you're going to make it through. Christ is not weak. The same God that saves you will sustain you. Believe it. We need this relationship. And here's the beautiful thing about the church. That might be a 30-year-old or an 80-year-old. I've been so encouraged by those half my age and double my age. It does not matter. God has used all of us in different ways in different circumstances and situations to grow us and to mold us. So I'm not saying just look for an older brother or sister that can walk us through, which most of them can. I'm saying look for someone around you. And again, Xander said it last week, I'll say it this week. This is a shameless plug for why family groups really matter to get involved into a community of people that love you, support you, and will encourage you in these times. Because please hear me, and I don't mean this in a a nihilistic, negative way, I mean this in a gospel way. If you've not yet come to a boat that's about to sink kind of moment in your life, it's coming. And it's not because God is mad at you or doesn't love you, it's because he's trying to grow you and sanctify you. It's a good God-honoring thing, but what happens in those moments is you must have a community around you. You must have those that can love, support, encourage, and pray over you. So if you are not in a season right now where you feel like the boat's about to sink, praise God, but get to work. Get busy loving and caring for those around us that desperately need it. So in, in light of all of that, Where are you at this morning in your faith over fear? Maybe this is the day of salvation for you. Praise God, let's pray, let's celebrate, rejoice because God saves sinners like us. And maybe you're in the room this morning and the boat is sinking. Please hear me, it's not. It's not, God has not left you nor forsake you. He actually sent his son to die for you, to rescue you, to redeem you. He didn't save you just to forget about you. That's not the gospel. So come to this altar, pray, give your fear over and ask God for more faith. And for those in the room that are living in a season right now where we've walked through the hard times and we've grown in our faith, let us love and support and encourage those around us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're grateful that when the disciples used that tone with you, you didn't just curse them on the spot. You did gently rebuke them and say, why why do you have little faith? But then you got up and you still answered their prayer, their petition. You still saved them physically. And we know, Father, that's a foreshadowing that you've come to save us, not just physically, but spiritually. 
that you've came to rescue and redeem us because all of us are born sinful into this world and all of us deserve a hell. We're all going to die one day and apart from you coming to save us from perishing, that's where we're all going to end up. But praise God that if we pray in faith, if we ask in faith to save us, that we are perishing, you are faithful and just to forgive us, to save us, to rescue us, and to bring us in as sons and daughters. And then we can sit back and sing it's well. No, no matter what happens, it is well with my soul, not because of what I've done, but because only what you have done on the cross in that empty tomb. And so, Father, thank you for that. For those in the room that are in the storm right now, they've trusted you as their Savior, but they cannot see five feet in front of them because of the rain that's falling. Father, we pray that they would keep begging, they would not lose the faith, that they would pray with expectation that you can do what you say you're going to do. And they would hold fast. They would open up to those around them. And they would rely on those to help them keep the faith through this hardship so that one day they could sit back and marvel. And lastly, those in this church right now that have the ability to disciple those around them, God, would you give them the faith to do it? Right now, even in this moment, Lord, would you speak to them? Who do we need to pray over? Who do we need to have to dinner? Who do we need to love on? Who do we need to encourage? Right now, in this moment, when I say amen, Father, I pray that you would give them a spring in their foot that would hop them out of the chair and go straight to the person that you've led on their heart. That this is not a room for perfect people. This is a sanctuary of sinners that are crying out to you. So let us drop the facade of perfection. Let us be real with one another. Pray, support, encourage one another. Hold each other together through these storms so that we can all look back and just see how beautiful and marvelous you are. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to us. Thank you for giving us a way for us to honestly say, save us, Lord, we're perishing. Because if Christ would not have come and taken all of our sin, not some, all of them, that we would have no future, we would have no hope. But you sent him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we may become the righteousness of God. And so in that fact, we want to worship you and praise you for what you've done. So church, in a second, as we're still praying, I'm going to say amen. The altar's always open. If, if someone has been laid on your heart this morning, I would encourage you to go grab them, come to the altar, pray. If you want more information about what does it mean to be a Christian, uh, I'm over here with my wife, but also whoever you came with, whoever you know, anybody would love to talk to you about it. But let us walk in faith this morning. Let us do the uncomfortable things to help us grow and become more like our, our Savior. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. It's your name we pray. Amen. So would you stand with me and uh, just respond however God has led you to respond.